Hi, welcome to Forever Paranormal with Dr. Bill and Deb. The term paranormal refers to phenomena and experiences that are beyond the scope of normal scientific understanding and cannot be easily explained through traditional scientific principles. These phenomena often challenge conventional beliefs and are associated with the supernatural, metaphysical, or unexplained aspects of reality. As with any field of inquiry, it is essential to approach the paranormal with an open but critical mind, relying on empirical evidence and logical reasoning to draw conclusions. It's a topic that continues to intrigue and challenge both believers and skeptics alike, and if we can connect a paranormal element to it, we'll talk about it. You'll be surprised by what all can be connected to the paranormal. Please don't forget to follow, rate, and share the show, since it would not be possible without you, our listeners. And as a public service, we would like to let everyone know that you are truly never alone, even if you think you are. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is 988. Please just reach out. Hi everyone, and welcome to this week's episode, where we are going to dive into the Enfield Poltergeist. Hi Deb. Hi. So, what's new this week? No more adult diaper bombs dropped in airplane bathrooms, I hope. No, I hope not either. But I did run across the three popular phone scams that are happening right now since the FCC supposedly cracked down. Would you like to hear them? Not really, but yeah, go ahead for our audience. Okay, the first one that's popular is uh, the scammers text you or call you and target uh, small business owners, mostly with Yelp listings. And, uh, you know, try to get you to give them their, your monetary information or personal information, um, or they'll take your listing down. Second one is uh, about Medicare, which, of course, targets older Americans, and they try to, um, or they spoof the numbers to make it look like a legitimate agency and they try to engage you and um, make you give up your Medicard num- Medicare card number, your Social Security number, or anything else that's personal like that. And the last one would be uh, the how to get rid of your debt scam. That's probably the biggest popular one right mm-hmm. there, or the most popular, I should say. Yeah, and and they'll take your money, and it's usually a high fee to supposedly either eliminate it or lower your debt, and they never really do anything. So yeah. look well, out, that, people. That's a pretty good scam. Well, that's good consumer information, and I'm sure some of our listeners will benefit from that yeah. because people are just stupid. Mm. <laughs> I hate to say it like that, but and not our listeners, but... People that try to do that to other people constantly. That's just a stupid thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for that. And let's move on. Okay. So as we were talking about before that wonderful public service announcement, (laughs) this is the terrifying tale that began in 1977 when Peggy Hodgson called the local police 
to report furniture moving, loud knocking noises, and sounds in the wall. And it is still terrifying people and drawing their interest today, some 46 years later. In fact, Apple TV even just released yet another documentary on this subject, but this one is directed by a normal documentary filmmaker and not someone from the paranormal realm. And let's not forget that it is also the story for the movie, The Conjuring 2, and has countless documentaries made about it and even had a television show at one time. The Unfilled Poltergeist is a ghost story revolving around the supernatural activity at 284 Green Street in Enfield, London, England, between 1977 and 1979. Some accounts say 78, but most of them say 79. And it was centered around the two Hodgins sisters, Janet, who was 11, and Margaret, who was 13. And one of the poltergeists, named Bill Wilkins, who had died in the house many years before. The first thing everyone needs to know about this event was looking at all accounts, listening to tapes, and reading case files, books, and reports, one quickly becomes very confused as to whether this really happened or was a giant hoax perfectly performed by these two young girls. The two girls have admitted to faking some of the activity to keep the attention going, but still today claim not all of it. Two members of the Society for Psychical Research, Maurice Gross and Guy Playfair, recorded and witnessed many of these activities. So did many police officers, other researchers, people from the press, and even Ed and Lorraine Warren, claimed they were convinced the events witnessed and recorded were in fact supernatural in origin. Yes, but still, in toll, there were a little over 30 people, including neighbors, paranormal investigators, police officers, journalists, and others that claimed to have witnessed the events at different periods. The events included, but were not limited to such things as levitation, furniture being moved, flying objects swirling towards witnesses, there were cold breezes, physical assaults, graffiti, water appearing on the floor, and even claims of matches spontaneously bursting into flame. With all that, we then must draw the logical conclusion. Either this was one hell of a haunting, or all of these people are very comfortable and great liars. Yes, it would be hard to fake the heavy objects flying through the air in spontaneous combustion. The graffiti, water on the floor, and cold breezes are factors that could be explainable unless the house and the girls are under 24-7 observation. Well, they kind of were as this thing got going, but I think one of the easiest things to fake is spontaneous combustion. It's just a chemical thing you can do. And it, you, know, you can put something together and it'll sit there for an hour before it gets hot enough to light a book of matches or something. Oh. So that's, that's not that hard to do on that one. I don't believe anyhow. Mm-hmm. How did all this get started? Well, here is one theory as told by the Hodgin sisters. Years after the haunting came to an end, the sisters confessed to having played with a Ouija board in a friend's shed before the incident began. They said they saw the face of a demon appear in the shed's window. 
is this really how it started or just a great opening scene for The Conjuring 2, which they actually used? Well, we'll probably never know, so let's go ahead and start down this rabbit hole. On Tuesday, August 30th, 1977, Peggy Hodgson went into her children's bedroom to tell them to stop fighting and go to sleep. They were complaining that the bed was shaking, but, thinking no more of it, she scolded them and went to bed. The next night, she heard a shuffling noise like someone walking about on the linoleum in slippers and then four loud knocks. When she went into the kids' room, she saw a chest of drawers slide across the floor. Peggy pushed it back and it slid forward again. She tried to push it back again but couldn't. It was then that the family figured something was aloof and ran to the Nottinghams next door and asked for help. Vic Nottingham and his son Gary went over to the Hodgins' house to investigate and heard knocks coming from all over the house, even though there was no one there. Of course, they thought someone was inside pulling a prank and called the cops, who arrived around 1 a.m. and checked the walls, attic, and pipes, but found nothing. Everyone came back to the house and gathered in the living room, while the officer and Vic, the neighbor, went into the kitchen to check if the refrigerator could be possibly causing the noise. When the lights in the living room began switching on and off again by themselves, and within a few minutes, the eldest son pointed to a chair that was standing next to the sofa. I looked at the chair and noticed that it was wobbling slightly from side to side. They all then saw the chair slide across the floor towards the kitchen wall. It moved approximately three to four feet before it stopped. Did they consider that someone in the house may have the ability to use their mind to make things move or manipulate the perception by other people? At this time frame, no, not at all, because they weren't even considering paranormal at this point. They, they just thought someone was in the house originally. The next night, Vic went back to the house and was attacked by flying Lego. Marbles and Lego flew around the house for the next three days, and various people visited in an effort to help, including members of the council and clergy. At a loss as to what was going on and what to do, on September 4th, Mrs. Nottingham, the neighbor lady, called the Daily Mirror, hoping that they could do something to help. The Mirror sent a reporter, Douglas Bentz, and photographer, Graham Morse. Graham Morse later said, I thought it was an ordinary job until I walked into the house. I stood in the gloom of the kitchen, and one by one, they brought the children into the adults' arms, and the last one to come in was Janet. Suddenly, things just took off and started flying around the room. I got hit by a Lego brick over my right eye. It gave me a lump for a few days. There was a fair bit of force. There were marbles and things left in the kitchen that were just flying around. I was watching all of the family and none of them was doing a thing. When I think of a Lego brick, I think of the little tiny lightweight pieces kids piece together to build stuff. I can't imagine how it could cause a lump. Also, 
why would the mother contact the press rather than an experienced professional in these things or a doctor or even a priest? Well, you got to keep in mind that back then the Legos were about the same size, but the plastic was harder and heavier. Hmm. They didn't have the lightweight plastics that they have now. And also, it wasn't the mother that contacted the press. It was the next-door neighbor lady, Mrs. Nottingham. Oh, I see. Then, another reporter, George Follows, and photographer David Thorpe from the Mirror visited the house. Since they were living in a council house, which is a type of public housing, Follows at first thought it was nothing more than a ruse to get another house, but soon changed his mind. Follows said, because of the emotional atmosphere at the house and in the neighborhood ranging from hysteria through terror to excitement and tension, it has been difficult to record satisfactory data. Nevertheless, I am satisfied the overall impression of our investigation is reasonably accurate to the best of our ability, and we have eliminated the possibility of total trickery. Follows then suggested contacting the Society for Psychial Research, and they were put in contact with Maurice Gross, a relatively new member of the Society who had joined after the death of his daughter the year before. Gross visited the house on the 5th of September. Gross said of the first visit, I found chaos. The whole family was congregated in the house together with the neighbors from next door. And there were a lot of very, very frightened people in there. Gross and the members of the press waited to witness any incidents, and on Wednesday, the 8th of September, at 1.15 a.m., they rushed into the children's bedroom after hearing a loud crash. The two sisters, Janet and Margaret, who appeared to be still asleep when a chair had flipped over and moved about three foot across the room, This was enough to convince Maurice to stay and investigate further. But I still wonder how the sisters were still asleep after a chair flew three foot across the room, crashing Mm -hmm. enough that everybody heard it to run in. Indeed. That's just my question. Okay, anyhow. Then, on the 10th of September, the Daily Mirror broke the story, describing it as the House of Strange Happenings. Later that evening... Peggy, the mother, appeared on a radio program called Nightline on LBC, a London radio station. When Peggy arrived home after the show, she was greeted by the BBC's Roz Moores from the Radio 4 show. The World This Weekend was the name of the show, and Roz joined Gross on an all-night vigil and also witnessed some paranormal activity. After the girls went to bed, there was a very loud crash upstairs in their bedroom. Something chucked the chair across the room. I'm convinced of that, Moore said. So far, the account is intriguing, but it sounds like they are attempting to get something more than peace out of this, like maybe a big story or five minutes of fame. That's probably why there's such skepticism about it. I agree, and there is still a lot of skepticism, and I think it may be a case of both, Mm -hmm. that it really was going on, possibly, and they were trying to get a big story from the papers, well, according to the papers and the news reports, 
And then the family got caught up in it, I believe, maybe. Maybe. But yeah, so I, I kind of agree with that one. That, and it is why there's a lot of skepticism today. Gross also saw flying marbles, jumping teaspoons, and boxes, and even a sofa that rose into the air and crashed down on the floor, upside down. Gross was among several people to witness these events. Other witnesses included the reporters and the next-door neighbors. Gross and the photographer rigged up a camera that took photos when triggered and managed to capture Janet being thrown from her bed. Realizing that this was out of his depth, Gross asked the SPR for help in investigating the poltergeist. Guy Playfair accepted the request and arrived at the house on the 12th of September. Gross and Playfair saw indentations in pillows and on the bed as though someone was lying there. There was a suspicion that the spirit of a four-year-old child who had been smothered with a pillow by her father may be responsible for the incidents. Peggy had been given items of furniture from the house of that little girl when they moved into the property in Enfield. Peggy made sure to throw out any furniture belonging to the little girl's former house, but the activity continued. The family was chased out of the house on Sunday, the 25th of September, and sought refuge with Peggy's brother, who lived up the road. While his wife, Sylvia, made some tea, a Lego brick appeared in front of her and dropped onto the table. It was then that the family realized that the entity could follow them out of the house. Most of the activity seemed to center around Janet. How could this be possible? Well, one way could be according to a paper written by two physicists, Piero Brovetto and Vera Maxia, called Some Conjectures About the Mechanism of Poltergeist Phenomenon, states that children can generate the poltergeist activity by channeling en energy into the quantum mechanical vacuum. Quantum vacuum state is defined as the quantum state with the lowest possible energy containing no physical particles. Could you explain that in layman's terms? Well, I'll give it a try and, and give you my best at it. So the way I understand it, it's where their energy is reduced into small amount, a smaller grouping. And you would use nothing but pure energy from you to hit a bottle of water to move that bottle of water. There's no physical properties going between point A and point B, just pure energy. That's how I understand it. This paper postulates that although poltergeist activity has been reported around the world and in different cultures, the one thing they all have in common is pubescent children or young women. The two physicists believe that during puberty, a modification of the body happens, which involves various organs, and these changes create fluctuations in electron activity that can cause disturbances up to a few meters around the outside of the brain. They believe that the extra fluctuations triggered by the pubescent brain can enhance virtual particles around the person, which increases the air pressure surrounding them, like that ball of energy we talked about, which could be responsible for moving objects. 
So are they saying that at puberty, we all have the ability or have had the ability to manipulate things? They're saying that the changes going on in the brain and the body are so drastic that it's possible at that time. They're not saying everybody has it. They're just saying there's a possibility of it. That they could realize it if they tried. Yes. I see. Yes. And, and today, that's the biggest thing about poltergeist activity. They think it's more of the person in the home, whether an adult or a, or a teenager. But that's a whole nother program. So anyhow, getting back at it, William Roll, a parapsychologist who studied many U.S. poltergeist events, noticed a tendency for the person at the center of the activity to exhibit symptoms of repressed anger or distress. He believed that the haunting was due to the discharge of mental energy he dubbed recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, or RSPK. He theorized that the person who involuntarily employed RSPK in order to let out the repressed feelings. Well, but that's a whole nother rabbit hole there, isn't it? Yes, it is. But what about the hollow knocks the witnesses were hearing from all over the house? Here's a cool science fact. According to Dr. Barry Colvin, a polyurethane technologist who carries out experimental psychial research, said poltergeist sound signatures cannot be reproduced. What differentiates a poltergeist knock from a human one is the difference in acoustic sound waves. When a human knocks on a surface, there is a full amplitude of sound which tapers off. A poltergeist rap starts quietly before becoming louder, then fading away in a similar waveform to that of an earthquake. As we said, Janet was the one affected the most, and it would appear she had a license to swear profusely, and displayed increasingly aggressive behavior during the haunting. She would suddenly rush across the room and bash her head on the wall, and her family became concerned that she would kill herself. She would have fits of rage, where she would shout and swear and had to be physically restrained. Towards the end of November, a doctor was called to the house, and he administered 10 milligrams of Valium in order to sedate her. But it's said after being sedated, Janet actually levitated and landed on a radio where she was discovered by John, Peggy's brother. Janet wasn't the only person affected by the poltergeist. Her mother claimed to know when events were about to take place as she would get a headache, and Margaret at one point shared the same dreams. However, the activity always followed Janet. Apparitions started to appear, and a neighbor's brother saw a light about a foot tall burning in the Hodgson's window before fading away. Another neighbor and Peggy saw the same elderly woman in different windows independently of each other. Janet's brother Johnny saw an old man with big teeth staring at him. In all, it was believed that around 15 different people saw some kind of supernatural entity during the haunting. A physicist named John Hasted had strapped Janet to a Blundell couch, which is an apparatus used to measure anomalies, and found that her weight increased in a way that couldn't be explained. He also observed a light bulb explode, which he considered a similar unexplainable incident. 
another physicist named David Robertson attempted to secretly video Janet, but found it impossible to conceal the equipment. He saw several unexplainable events, such as a sideboard overturning, Janet levitating, and a cushion being transported to the roof, among other things. At this point, the family requested to be moved into another house, and although the council would not rehouse the family, they did agree to send them away for a week-long break. They sent them to Clacton on sea, and the only incident that occurred there was the sound of a dog barking from Janet's bed. I'm not sure why this was reported in the things, but it was. And then on November 5th, when the Hodgins returned from their holiday, Gross decided to communicate with the spirit using raps. One for no, and two for yes. He then asked, are you a male spirit? Came back, meaning yes. Did you used to live in this house? Another yes. Was it more than 50 years ago? Yet another yes. Did you die in the house? Yeah, one more for confirmation. Are you unhappy here? A no. Why are you here? Is it because you want to give us a special message? Another no. Then he asked, Are you having a game with me? No knocks, but the spirit then threw a cardboard box and pillow at Maurice Gross's face. Then on Monday, the 10th of November, which was Janet's 12th birthday, Playfair invited an Argentine physicist called Eduardo Balanovsky to visit. He brought a magnetometer which they used to look for anomalies in the electromagnetic field around the house. During his visit, Janet's, Janet's pillow was thrown around and the machines did register a change in electromagnetic field strength. What does the change in electromagnetic field indicate? What they use, what we use now is called an EMF detector. Right? Oh, and it's the same thing, and, it, and a spirit or the ghost has a different energy. And that energy shows up on that detector when they come and go. So it's a change in the amount of energy. But in all fairness, a walkie-talkie, a, a cell phone, those things will do the same thing if they're in that area. So when you perform the test, it's very important to make sure the area is clear of all electronics. On November 12th, Janet, on the advice of a psychic, left pens and paper around the house and called out to the entity to leave her a message, after which messages started appearing around the house. Peggy, her mother, found one on the fridge that said, I will stay in the house, do not read this to anyone, or I will retaliate. The next message, which was found on the living room table, said, Can I have a tea bag? And Peggy placed a tea bag on the table, and a ripped tea bag actually manifested next to it. Peggy's ex then turned up in the house and she showed him the messages. Once he had gone, Peggy apologized to the entity for showing him the messages, and another note appeared saying, It was a misunderstanding. Don't do it again. I know who that was. I noticed that the responses were to Peggy. Was, was this at a time where the entire house was being observed? 
How do we know someone in the house was not leaving the responses? We don't know, but, you know, at this point, Maurice Gross and Playfair and them were actually staying at the house with the family 24-7. But there's also a rumor or, or suspicion that the notes were written in Janet's handwriting. But I've never personally seen the note, and I'm no handwriting expert. So I'm not sure. She was the one who put the notes out, but they were written to, the responses were written to her mother. That is strange. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it is. It, it's strange, but I'm not sure why. Mm. And on Tuesday, November 29th, the first medium, a Brazilian psychic called Luis Gasparetto, visited the family. He was accompanied by his interpreter, Elsie Dugrasa, who was a member of the healing department of Salo Paulo State Spiritualist Federation. They offered some spiritual healing for the family, which gave them some respite. Luis would go into a trance-like state and produce drawings and paintings. After they left, Janet began producing disturbing, bloody pictures whilst in a trance. She also wrote the name Watson over and over on a page. But, you know, it turned out that a family called Watson had lived in the house and the wife had died of a tumor in her throat in a similar way to one of the bloody pictures Janet had drawn. Now, on Saturday, December 3rd, Janet was pulled out of her bed and Maurice found her sliding down the stairs headfirst while she was still asleep. I personally find this hard to believe, that you're going down the stairs head first, and you're still asleep. But anyhow, a couple of days later, another member of the SPR joined the team, a student physicist named David Roberts. More members of the SPR joined him on December 10th, Dr. John Belloff and Anita Gregory. The group challenged the entity to speak, and after some whistles and barking, a gruff voice calling himself Joe Watson began to speak. However, the next night, the voice said this was the name of Bill Wilkins. And on Tuesday, December 13th, Maurice Gross's son, Richard, helped his father interrogate the presence. Since there were two names being uttered, were there multiple entities at play? Yes, there were multiple entities. And throughout the course of the haunting it was reported that there was at least 12 different spirits that spoke through Janet or visited the house in one way, manner, or another. Um, I believe it was 12. So when Maurice and his son started interrogating the spirit, the spirit responded with a banging in response to questions. But a man's voice was soon heard coming from somewhere behind Janet's neck. The voice identified itself as Bill Wilkins, who had died in the house at the age of 72. Richard asked him how he died, and he said, I went blind, I had a hemorrhage, I fell asleep, and I died in a chair in the corner downstairs. Well, it just so happens Bill's son Terry later confirmed that this was indeed how his father had died. When Playfair asked why he wasn't visible, Bill said, I'm invisible because I'm a ghost. Then to rule out the possibility of Janet faking the voice, Gross taped up her mouth, 
but the voice continued. He then asked Janet to hold water in her mouth, which she did, and the voice can still be heard talking. Gross reportedly recorded hours of the voice by using a contact microphone placed on the back of Janet's head. That would be a very good ventriloquist trick, especially for an 11-year-old child. Gross and Playfair then decided to hypnotize Janet and called in Dr. Ian Fletcher, who was a hypnotist, a surgeon, and a member of the Magic Circle. Fletcher put Janet into a light state of hypnosis and asked her some questions. Fletcher later said, The impression I formed was this is not fraud. She and her sister are doing some of these things, maybe springing out of bed, but something is forcing them to do it against their will. What is the magic? The Magic Circle is an organization for a group of people that promote magic. And I believe it's more in the magician's type of magic than what we would think of as witchcraft type of magic or cult type of magic. So, on the 16th of May, the SBR formed a committee themselves in order to carry out their own investigation. The committee interviewed the witnesses, which they found convincing. They also consulted Charles Moses, an experienced investigator from the Southern California Society for Psychial Research. The committee found that there was good evidence for the paranormal phenomena as described by the various witnesses. However, they were reluctant to give credibility to the voice of Bill Wilkins. Now, on July 25th, the family sent Janet to the Maudsley Hospital, which is a psychiatric hospital in South London, and the incidents did die down, even though the family was still seeing apparitions. Janet underwent extensive physical and psychological assessment at the Institute of Neuropsychiatry under Dr. Peter Fenwick, and nothing was found to be wrong with her, including brain damage or epilepsy. Janet returned on September 1st after being away for nearly six weeks, and within an hour saw the apparition of a little boy. Then, on Monday, October 2nd, they called in another medium, a Dutchman named, and I'll probably butcher the name here, Dono Meligmeling, who came to the house and traveled along the astral plane. He was certain that a 24-year-old woman was involved in the case. Maurice Gross had a daughter, and she, who was also named Janet, and she died in a car crash at the age of 24. And it was this that led him to become a member of the SPR. After Dono identified that 24-year-old woman, the incidents tapered off and then eventually stopped. Let's not forget that the Warrens visited this house over two different periods of time, and afterwards, Ed Warren was quoted as saying, This Enfield case makes Amityville look like a playhouse. That's a pretty bold statement. So, what do you think about all this, Deb? So, a couple questions. Why did this Dutchman travel the astral plane? 
Well, maybe so he could get to the Akashic Records and things and find out who all these spirits were and what the connection could possibly be and why Gross was compelled to go there and why things escalated why Gross was there. That's one possible reason. Okay, so all the activity had started before the family was put in touch with Gross. How or why would his daughter have been at the root of this case, if I'm reading, if I'm hearing correctly? Well, it did start, but it didn't escalate until he arrived. That's when the different spirits started coming through and things like that. And it may be that he was so distraught over his daughter, he was actually helping put this energy out there to bring those spirits forth. Other people like Bill Wilkins, who did die in the house and things like that. It's possible that, that he did that, yeah, but we don't know. And I know Guy Playfair went on to write a book about it, and he covers a lot of things in there. And with that, you know, a lot of the information that we use in this story came from Guy Lyon Playfair's book, which is The House is Haunted. And we also researched many different timelines, like through Higgy Pop and other things, and, you know, some stuff in the Haunted Magazine by Joe Prowse and many other outlets and books. And we're going to put some of the actual recordings on our Facebook and website page for people to listen to. But what about you folks? What do you think? We'd like to hear our contact infos in the show notes. And with that, we're going to bring this little bit long and lengthy episode to a close. And thanks for listening. And until next time, when we discuss another tale yet to be told. Thank you for listening, and remember to like and share the show. We would also appreciate a five-star rating wherever possible to help new listeners find the show. We welcome all questions or comments you may have about this or any other episode, and our contact information can be found in the show notes of this episode. You can also follow us at foreverparanormal.com. And if you'd like to support us, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash forever paranormal. The links to these are also in the show notes of this episode.